Hi guys, another episode of our Theology and Coffee. Thank you for tuning in and we are hoping that you finish the session. So, God bless. Thank you. Hi everyone, welcome to another Coffee and Theology and uh, tonight we'll continue on and and proceed with the book. Uh, we are in chapter 7 of the book by Joel Beakey, Reformed Systematic Theology. It's entitled, Why Do We Do Theology? And <clears throat> so why would we immerse ourselves in this weighty task of the theology? We have asked what theology is, who does it, when we do it in the scope of redemptive history, where we do it and which theology we are doing. You have no doubt come away with some impression of the massive undertaking that theology comprises. So why bother? Why not devote the hours we spend reading, thinking, writing, and speaking to something else? Is theology something we are forced to do only in order to graduate from seminary? Or is it a precious, vital, delightful work? In order to answer this question, we must approach it negatively and positively. On the negative side, we must address objections raised against systematic theology. On the positive side, we must ask what is the reason for theology and show that, it's, that this reason is sufficient to motivate us to take up the labor of the theological, theological disciplines with joy and anticipation. So common objections to theology. The question of why we do theology presses hard against us in this age. A number of objections are raised raised against the discipline of systematic theology. Though we deal with them individually here, we realize that in many cases they appear in combinations. Each objection rejects theology as a valuable study of the Bible in order to know God and replaces it with another form of study it deems more important. While we do not believe that these objections are valid, we do value them because they warn us of dangers we need to avoid. Objection number one, empiricism. In the empiricist perspective, only those that can be measured by the physical sciences can contribute to our knowledge of reality. We can know only what we see, hear, touch, taste, or smell. Carl Henry wrote, arrogating to itself sovereign sway over the whole of external reality and thus implying omni-competence to disclose its hidden secrets and to define whatever may be said about it, scientific empiricism has been hailed as the great demythologizer whose reliable way of knowing unmasks all the legends and myths of the past in order to substitute authentic knowledge. Theology then is mere religious opinion and private belief, not a public form of knowledge worthy of authoritative teaching. We answer empiricism first by showing its foolish inconsistency. The statement that we can, sh- can know only that which is proven scientifically itself cannot be proven in a scientific laboratory. It is philosophical assertion. Second, empiricism is naive about the physical sciences which do not merely analyze data but as John Frame points out interprets 
interpreted according to prevailing theories which are based upon assumptions and traditions that change dramatically over time. Empiricism sets sets up a new methodology enshrined around the idol of infallible scientific community that acts with total objectivity. Against this idolatry, we assert that the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding, Proverbs 2.6. Third, empiricism fails to grapple with the fact that much of what we know derives from personal communication. This knowledge of true this, this is true of knowledge we gain from other people. As to God, though we cannot see the invisible or measure the infinite, through His Son, He has communicated with us. Frame said, God's speech to man is real speech. It's very much like one person speaking to another. God speaks so that we can understand Him and respond appropriately. This is a central teaching of the Bible and the basis of theology. We may learn from the empiricist objection that theology must not become an exercise in abstract ideas. God's word has come to us in human history, indeed as a human being who was seen, heard, touched, and crucified and who will come again. Objection number two, pragmatism. Pragmatism argues that the only thing that matters is success in building the church, especially through evangelism. The important truths of the Bible, it is said, are simple and need no theological elaboration. From the point of view of pragmatism, theology is a waste of time. Instead, church leaders should devote themselves to the study of human social behavior in order to master techniques to increase the size of their churches. Pragmatism is a devastating application of empiricism to Christian theology for it values only measurable, visible results. We answer the pragmatic objection by affirming that sound theology is essential to evangelism and building the church. Evangelism is preaching the gospel. The church must guard against a false, accursed gospel such as infected the Galatians. Christian churches can be surprisingly open receiving to receiving the preaching of another Jesus and another gospel by the servants of Satan. As to building the church, the apostles the apostle Paul says Christ gives pastors and teachers to the church to build up the body that we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slay of men and cunning, cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ Ephesians 4 verses 13 to 15 Theological knowledge doctrine and truth are crucial for spiritual growth. While there is certainly more to the Christian life than studying theology, true theology is quite practical. Samuel Miller, professor at Princeton Seminary, wrote, In forming the religious character here recommended, it, it is of the utmost importance that the foundation be laid in clear views of divine truth. Doctrinal knowledge is apt to be undervalued by private Christians, 
and especially by the young. They imagine, according to the popular prejudice, that if the heart be right and the conduct correct, the doctrines embraced are of small moment. This supposes that the heart of any one may be right while his principles are essentially wrong, or that his practice may be pure while his religious opinions are radically erroneous. But nothing can be more contrary both to scripture and experience. The great founder of our holy religion declares that men are sanctified by truth. In fact, it is only so far as the truth is received, loved, and obeyed that real religion has any place either in the heart or life. However, we are grateful for this objection because it warns us against considering theological truth apart from its practical use. We must avoid ivory tower theology but trace how the Bible applies explicitly and implicitly its doctrines to practical life and missions. Objection 3. Ecumenism <laughs> Doctrine divides, we are told. Therefore, some, perhaps many doctrines of the Bible are best left alone because careful study and fervent teaching produce more heat than light. From the ecumenist, ecumenist perspective, theology damages the unity of the body of Christ. We answer the ecumenist objection by pointing out that sound doctrine unites, as the text quoted just above states about the unity of the faith, I quote, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, end quote. Ephesians 4 verse 13. Only false doctrine divides. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verse 30, Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It insults the wisdom of God to say that His word contains teaching that we do best to avoid. All scripture is profitable for teaching and application. 2 Timothy 3.16 the ecumenical objection does offer this helpful warning that we must never do theology with a divisive spirit. For the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to preach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose. 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24 to 25. <sighs> wow. Objection 4. Anti-intellectual biblicism. Academic seminaries have betrayed Christians time and again. Therefore, we are told we should not engage in theology, just read and teach the Bible. In this anti-intellectual embrace of the Bible, theology is the road to heresy. We answer the anti-intellectual biblicist with another question. What does the Bible teach? It is impossible to teach biblical truth without reflecting upon the Bible in a systematic fashion. Thus, Christ not only says, search the scriptures, but indicates that we must do so knowing the whole Bible testifies to him. John 5 verse 39. The intellectual discipline of theology is not infidelity but obedience to the call to meditate upon these things. Paul's words apply here. We quote, I would not have you be to be ignorant, brethren. End quote. Ignorance is the mother of heresy. Cornelius Van Til said, 
It is sometimes contended that ministers need not be trained in systematic theology if only they know their Bibles, but Bible-trained instead of systematically trained preachers frequently preach error. Systematics helps ministers to preach the whole counsel of God and thus to make God central in their work. Yet we also acknowledge the force of this objection, for it is true that seminaries often do drift from their biblical moorings. School and theologians must keep watch according to Paul's admonition. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. <clears throat> Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. 1 Timothy 4.16 Objection number 5. Romanticism Romanticism is an appeal to the emotions. It says that real godliness is not a matter of truths in the mind, but of feelings in the heart. In this point of view, the only thing that matters is bringing people into a personal encounter with God so that they may be moved to love Him. To, love him. to the romantic, theology equals dead orthodoxy. Alternatively, romanticism may define my may redefine theology as the study not of God but of our feelings about God. <laughs> Friedrich Friedrich Schleimacher said Christian doctrines are accounts of the Christian religious affections set forth in speech. Mm. We answer the romanticist objection by quoting our Lord's word in John 18 verse 31 to 32. We quote, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. End quote. Faithful reception of Christ's word results in knowing the truth. This is more than a feeling of joy, dependence, or awe. It is possible to respond to the word with such emotions, but then fall away as the feelings prove to be nothing of abiding value. Luke 8 verse 13. When Peter confessed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't merely declare his feelings, but said, We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. John 6 verse 69. As Frame notes, Slymarder was promoting subjectivism, not theology. Hmm. We do admit, however, that we must never reduce Christianity to a cold and emotionless set of beliefs. True theology in the heart is living and vital. Indeed, as the knowledge of God, it is life eternal. John 17 verse 3. Objection number 6. Agnosticism. In its most extreme form, agnosticism results in skepticism, the denial of all knowledge. Softer forms of agnosticism minimize how much we can know for certain about God. Since God is so great, it holds that any attempt to build a system of truths not only fails but necessarily distorts the paradoxes of God and dishonors His infinity. infinity. To the theological agnostic, theology is arrogance. We must answer the agnostic that it is no arrogance to believe God's word with all our hearts, but rather the greatest humility. Isaiah 66 verse 2. The Bible, <coughs> excuse me, 
The Bible is not a cloud of darkness, but a light that brings clarity and sight. Christ rebukes ignorance and doubt when he says, O fools and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The Bible does not commend doubt, but repeatedly affirms that we know certain truths. Faith, at least in part, is certain. It's a certain knowledge that what God has revealed in His Word is true. Yet we can learn even from the agnostic, for he reminds us that we always do theology as finite creatures and image bearers, not as gods, peers, or equals. Our theology can be true, but never comprehensive of God's infinite glory. This calls the theologian to humility. Objection 7. Progressivism. The progressive argues that systematic theology is too dogmatic and rigid. We are told that we are on a never-ending journey into truth, so we never arrive at a any infinite or definite sorry conclusions. The theological progressivism progressivism sees theology as bondage to tradition and posits an evolutionary view of religion in which we constantly shed old, old forms and advance to higher levels. <laughs> I remember uh, one example, quick example about this is that uh, there, I heard a comment from uh, a person where he doesn't want to atter, uh, attend uh, the Reformed Church just because he thinks that the hymnals are kind of old and he wants the music to be contemporary. So, yeah. Anyway, let's continue. We answer progressivism by noting our biblical duty. As Paul writes to Timothy, to hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. There is a deeply conservative element in theology, for it is our aim to preserve and expound us apostolic truth not add to it, yes, to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude 3 True reformation is a return to the, to the old paths. However, the progressive perspective contains a kernel of salutary truth. We are not to confuse our systems of theology with the inerrant word of God. Therefore, there is the possibility and duty of further reformation according to the Word of God, but a reformation that builds upon the orthodox creeds and evangelical confessions of the past, not one that disowns them. Van Til wrote creedal revision that tones down the specific and exact teachings of Scripture to vague generalities is worse than useless. It is retrogressive. Objection number 8. Rationalism the rationalist says that all truth is deduced from the logical principles and self-evident truths in our minds. Our knowledge is based, it is said, upon reasonable thinking, but rationalism regards many essential Christian doctrines such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, or substitu substitutionary atonement as irrational or illogical and therefore untrue. We answer rationalism first by noting that no one can deduce all his knowledge from rational principles for we all rely upon the testimony of those we trust. Second, the most rational action we can take is to believe all that God has said. 
for he is the highest authority. John 3.31.33 says, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, and that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that had received his testimony had said to see to his seal that God is true. Third, rationalism fails because it is idolatrous. Frame explains, and I quote, The rationalist seeks certainty outside of God's word. He seeks their ultimate criteria for thought within his own innate ideas and deductive reasoning. In biblical terms, the rationalist requests his idolatrous is idolatrous because it is the attempt to defy or defy human thought. So, mas mataas yung yung ginojos yung pag yung pag-iisip. Since God is God, there is no searching of His understanding. Isaiah 40 verse 28, and His thoughts transcend our reasoning. The objection of rationalism, however, does help us to guard against making foolish theological statements. Theology transcends logic, but it is not logical. Oh, sorry. Theology transcends logic, but it is not illogical. God cannot contradict himself. Numbers 23 verse 19. And therefore, our theology should engage in contradiction. Should not engage in contradiction. Objection number nine, relativism. The relativist argues that there is no absolute truth. The Bible, we are told, has has as many meanings as there are people who read it or even more. We have no right to force our opinions on others. The relativist considers theology to be an attempt to oppress others, an act of hatred or abuse. We answer relativism first by noting that it contradicts itself. Frame writes, the subjectivists tries to convince others of his view and thus he concedes that there is some truth knowable to others besides beside himself he claims to know objective objectively objectively the truth that there is no objective truth and that is a self-defeating argument second the lord is truth and love it is therefore no contradiction to speak the truth in love Those who love us best will tell us the truth, even if it wounds us. Third, we do have access to absolute truth in the word of God. The Lord Jesus says that to abide in his words is to know the truth. For as he says to the Father, thy word is truth. Christ rebukes or rebuked the Sadducees. Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. Matthew 22 verse 29. We must follow its word or we will fall into error. The conflict between truth and error is no piecemeal affair, as Vantil observed, but a life and death struggle between two mutually opposed life and worldviews. Therefore, we are best equipped to stand for the truth when our worldview is directed by systematic reflection upon the Bible. Nevertheless, we appreciate the relativists' warning against oppressive and hateful speech. 
Though Christ did not shrink from preaching divine judgment, he warmly and lovingly calls unbelievers to himself. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Verses uh, 28 to 30. Our theology must not lay oppressive burdens on the souls of those who turn to Christ or set us up as lords over others. Rather, we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Having surveyed these nine objections to theology, we have seen that they actually speak against false and wicked theology, but not the sound theology of God's word. Therefore, let us not be deterred or discouraged by these objections, but rather let us press on to know the Lord and make Him known. The reasons for theology, God has spoken. We read in Hebrews 1 verse 1-2, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, had in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he had appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds this is the great reason why we can and must do theology god has spoken and we have his word we will consider the doctrine of revelation in detail later but let us consider this simple yet spent stupendous fact god has revealed himself in words suited for our learning and comfort Romans 15 verse 4 the work of a theologian is to assist the church in hearing and responding to his word we find an excellent model for a theologian in Ezra the scribe Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgment Ezra 7 verse 10 as a result of Esther's ministry of the word, Nehemiah 8, we read that the people met in public assembly to bless the Lord their God as the only God in the faithful covenant God of his people. This then is the reason we do theology. God has given us his word and theologians must study it to what it says and teach it in God's church so that people glorify him. We will explore this call to the task of theology with special reference to the book of Deuteronomy. As the last sermon of Moses, Deuteronomy recapitulates the divine revelation of the first four books of the Bible, reminds the people that the Lord has redeemed them and spoken his covenant word to them and summons them to respond. Moses' words are God's words for for he spoke according unto all that the Lord had given him. God has spoken, so we must hear Him. The book of Deuteronomy resonates with the call, O uh, hear, O Israel. This is more than a command to use one's ears. It requires thought. Since God has spoken, you must hear God's words, that ye may learn them. Hearing God's word require, rewards requires personal reflection and communal, communal conversation. To hear the Lord engages your heart to understand, therefore, the implication of what He says. 
to speak not thou in thy heart any thoughts contrary contrary to his words but to understand remember and forget not it is the only and it is the one and only god who speaks people must integrate what god says into their whole mindset until god's word rule them receiving god's word into our whole life requires systematic theology vantil said it is a god-given duty that we should take the content the content of the of scripture and bring it together into a systematic whole mm. it is plain that we are required to know the revelation that god has given us yet we would not adequately know the that ref- revelation if we knew it only in several parts without bringing these parts into relation to each other our minds must think systematically we hear god by attending to the word of christ the prophetic call of moses foreshadowed and foretold the ministry of a greater prophet like unto moses ablaze with supernatural light on a mountain and talking with moses and elijah while peter james and john watched a cloud overshadowed them and the father said this is my beloved son hear him after christ died rose again and ascended to heaven peter quoted moses promise moses promise and applied it to his fellow jews in jerusalem and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people the christ-centered equality of our listening to god does not limit us to the new testament for as christ taught all the old testament is about him therefore the prophetic word of god through christ requires that we hear him with open ears and active mind and a believing heart in the midst of the teaching and fellowship of god's people this is the essence of the theological task to hear god's voice with all that we are martin luther said hear god is a bliss to hear god is a bliss therefore we must pay attention with trembling Hmm. god has spoken so we must obey him in the biblical perspective we have not heard god rightly unless we do what he says deuteronomy 5 verse 1 says and moses called all israel and said unto them hear o israel the statutes and judgments which i speak in your heart in your ears this day that ye may learn them and keep and do them deuteronomy 6 verse 3 says hear therefore o israel and be careful to do them Alan Harmon writes, not only were the people of Israel to listen to the stipulations of the covenant, but they were to order their lives in obedience to them. The Deuteronomy describes the theological task as a work of remembrance, which refers not to bare mental impressions upon the memory, but to perpetually and faithfully embracing God's word to direct one's life according to this to his covenant, as opposed to forgetting the Lord and his covenant. Spiritual remembrance produces obedient action. And thou shalt remember, and thou shalt observe and do these statutes. Conversely, forgetting God in his covenant results in disobedience. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgment and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Ignatius wrote about uh, 100 AD, study therefore to be established in the doctrines of the lord and the apostles that so all things whatsoever you do may prosper both in the flesh and spirit in faith and love 
in the Son, and in the Father, and in the Spirit. Hearing and remembering God's Word requires more than just reciting texts from the Bible, for God's law does not explicitly regulate every situation. Rather, it requires a worldview that takes into account the whole counsel of God in order to guide the whole life. Therefore, the obligation to obey God's word necessitates the theological task. For obedience requires the engaging of one's whole mind to discern God's will by the integration of his various revelation into a unified whole. Without systematic theology, we cannot apply the fullness of God's word into our lives. Oh, napaka-importante. So guys, to those who are listening uh, until now, this is one of the, I mean, for me, um, very, very compelling. Like we are doing systematic theology is for us to be able to apply it appropriately, the fullness of God's word unto our lives. Diba? Hmm. Next. God has spoken, so we must teach others of Him. So, the fact that God has spoken necessitates our teaching His Word to other people. Deuteronomy envisions two kinds of teaching, domestic teaching in the home and ecclesiastical teaching in the assemblies of God's people. Teaching the family and teaching the church are closely related for the Lord commanded Moses to teach the people so that they would teach their children. The theological task has multi-generational ambitions aiming to inculcate the fear of the Lord unto into thou and thy son and thy son's son. Israel must hear the words of the Lord and keep them upon their hearts in order to teach them diligently unto thy children, permeating every activity of life with an ongoing conversation between thou and thy son about God and his word. Good theology bears fruit in accurate and skillful catechisms and other tools by which people in every age group may drink in the doctrine of the Lord as there is spiritual milk. Moses possessed a unique office as the preeminent prophet of the Old Covenant. God entrusted a continuing teaching office to the priests. The Lord said to the people through Moses, Do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you as I commanded them, so you shall observe to do. Thus it is written of the sons of Levi, They shall teach Jacob thy judgment and, and Israel thy law. Hmm. The old covenant priesthood with its ritual passed away at the sacrifice of our great high priests, Jesus Christ. But in the ministers the word in the new covenant church, the teaching office continues. The perpetuity of this teaching office requires the training of men in sound doctrine and the refutation of error and thus the work of theologians. John Calvin said of God's pastors, they must all their life long endeavor to maintain the doctrine and uh, therewithal they must have their mouths open to preach the word that is committed unto them to the end that the, that the treasure be not lost nor buried but that all men may be made partakers thereof. Thus theology serves mission. So guys, uh, stop muna tayo ngayon. 
And uh, let's continue to the next subheadings or subtopics. So, good night. God had spoken, so we must glorify Him. The most famous call to hear the Lord appears in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and all thy might. God has spoken, and we must love Him. All our study, obedience, and uh, teaching aims at returning to the Lord the all-encompassing love that He deserves from us. Such love expresses itself in exclusive worship, the fear and service of the Lord alone. Calvin queried in his Catechism, question 6, What is the true and right knowledge of God? And answered, When we know Him in order that we may honor Him. Orthodox theology aims at doxology. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 indicates that worship is the sum of all God teaches us in the Word. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. By contrast, the greatest disaster into which a people can fall is to serve other gods. The highest purpose of God's redemptive acts is to distinguish himself from all false gods and idols so that he alone is glorified as God. Sound theology teaches us the nature of the true God so that we will not worship them by which which by nature are no gods, Galatians 4.8. We do not want to fall under Christ's rebuke to the Samaritans. Ye worship ye, you know not what, John 4 verse 22. Johannes Bolivius said, Christian theology is the doctrine concerning God as he is known and worshipped for his glory and for our salvation. True theology not only directs whom we worship, but also regulates how we worship. After forbidding Israel to imitate the other nations in the manner of their worship, the Lord said, What thing soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, thereto, nor diminish from it. Deuteronomy 12 verse 32 the doctrine of God's holiness and a biblical ecclesiology teach us to be zealous in worshiping God according to His command and not the inventions of man's will. Colossians 2 verse 22-23 We must do theology because God has spoken and we must glorify Him according to His will. Without sound doctrine, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. As Calvin said, for a man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. Kelly Capic writes, 
whatever whether it is the distant and uninterested deity of modernity or the fragmented and territorial gods of post modernity all times and cultures carry the danger of wrapping our worship warping our worship uh, pardon for that however calvin said if we will know whether we have profited in god's law or no we must always sift and search ourselves whether we have such desire and zeal that god should be honored and glorified by us thus the theologian should not be motivated by merely accumulating knowledge take note but as richard of saint victor said by the fervor of my burning soul wow so guys that ends our chapter or our discussion for this episode and next uh, episode we'll discuss how do we do theology part one which is on the chapter eight of the book reform systematic theology and the uh, coverage of that uh, chapter would be spiritual dynamics so we'll tackle well actually i'll get just gonna read so you know joel bicky uh, i'm a big um uh fan i w- would say uh now starting to read more of your work and i thank you for that and i hope this if you ever had a chance uh, by any chance to be able to hear this um you know i just want to say thank you for your work and 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 by no means i am in any way intending to infringe the copyright but more of like this again this is just a study but i'm really thankful for for the lord uh, to the lord for your work thank you very much guys have a blessed day wherever you are god bless <music>